0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel.
1: The reading this evening comes from Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for god by the spirit this is the word of the lord
0: let's pray father we love you and we praise you and we're grateful uh, to gather around your word this evening we're grateful um, that you and your wisdom and your kindness chose before the foundation of the world to, to build us up in love and to send your son who is our peace into this world that we might know peace and know truth and know you. We ask that you would open up our eyes, uh, give us wisdom to understand your word, um, help us to be your holy temple. In Christ's name we pray these things, amen. You may be seated. Good afternoon, welcome. My name's Kyle, I'm a pastor here at Christ Church uh, and it's a joy to be with you today. It's a joy to open the word with you today. I wanna to say welcome back to Nathan. Uh, I'm grateful uh, that you had a chance to, I don't know, lose your bags and walk around in English clothes. No, to uh, present your paper, to get to talk to your advisor, to develop your thoughts. I'm more grateful that you're back. Uh, We had so many wonderful people step up in your leave. I'm so thankful for Aaron and Jordan, uh, for their just teaching and for their service and their kindness. So thankful for so many of you who stepped up to serve um, as people were traveling. Uh, Mark, we're so glad to have you back and so thankful that you're back. Um, God has truly blessed this church. And so let's continue to be grateful. Let's continue to serve one another. And let's all just get our phones out now and cancel travel plans for like, I don't know, through September. Wouldn't that be so nice? I mean. Oh, I I would love that. I know we can't do that, but I'm so glad to be with you today. It's been a joy to be in the book of Ephesians with all of you for the last month or so. Uh, It's an incredible task to consider the brilliance of God in uniting all things in heaven and on earth in the person, Jesus Christ. Uh, My wife has created a saying around our house. She often says it. she says, I'm not asking much. I'm just asking that you anticipate my needs and meet them. Okay. And, and so it's a hilarious joke that we make when we disappoint each other, um, when we, uh, I don't know, when we annoy each other, but it's it really, that's kind of what the book of Ephesians is all about. Before the world was created, before um, anything, God chose Christ to unite all things in heaven and on earth. Ephesians chapter one says, before the foundation of the world was laid, God anticipated our needs and met them in Jesus so that his manifold wisdom might be be displayed not only here on earth, but also to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Like it says in Ephesians 310, which we'll get to next week. It's incredible. Before we were created, he chose us in love to participate in his glorious plan to make his name great by displaying his church for all of existence to see. The completed work of Christ on the cross speaks to the cosmos, the brilliance God, uh, the brilliance of God, and it speaks to our hearts, the brilliance of God with a still small voice. God spoke like Jordan talked about last week and he saved us. He brought us from death to life. We were adopted and the fabric of our dead reality was made new, but that's not it. This still small voice is building as Christ unites things on earth and it's turning into a booming declaration of God's wisdom and kindness that reverberates farther than any human could imagine. Has anyone seen or nerded out over the web telescope pictures recently? It's incredible. Like, I, it's, 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 I can't even fathom that. I don't know math. I don't know science. I don't know rockets. Um, but I do know uh, that that is a distance that I can't even perceive. And those are, it, like, the power is being displayed that I cannot understand. God's wisdom in Christ is being announced. There's not an inch of existence in which the cross of Christ does not glorify the Father by displaying his wisdom. Amen. As I read this passage over the last few weeks in prep for this sermon, I was struck with the gravity of Ephesians, with what Paul is explaining here. It became clear what I was reading was deep and profound, and I honestly began to get nervous. I was like, oh, wow, this is Heavy. Preaching is a weighty task, and it gets weightier Um, the more you consider the types of truths that we're trying to expose, that we're trying to understand together. Like, these truths are big. Truths that were a mystery even to Paul. Okay, that's what Paul's saying. He's an Old Testament Jewish scholar trained under the best rabbis. Until the dawn of Christ, these things Paul did not know about. Think about it, Paul had to be brought from death to life in order to understand the truths he is teaching in the book of Ephesians and that we're trying to understand now. A lifetime of devotion to the Jewish scriptures, to the God of Israel was insufficient to understand the mystery of Jesus. The mystery that Jews and Gentiles alike were blind to the will of God. Nobody got it, nobody saw it. Only by grace through faith could Paul understand what God has been doing from eternity past in the Messiah of Israel didn't help my nerves when I read this from the commentary I leaned on most heavily. The commentator said this, this paragraph of scripture has been regarded as the most significant ecclesiological text the new testament i was really worried that i wouldn't say ecclesiological correctly i did Um, ecclesiology is just a fancy word for the study of the church Um, but this commentator and many others think that this is like the bedrock teaching in scripture that we should build up our understanding of the church from and so man it just got me fired up so let's get into it together now and let me encourage you to continue your study um, after this sermon is over that we can continue to grow into a fitting body for our head jesus as the weeks come so there's a there's Three clear sections, and and like Nathan said, I had great clips, I had, I mean, maps, and I do this every time. I feel like the projector's broken every time I teach, and I make that same lame joke. But um, this first, uh, the first of the three, is verses 11 through 13. I'd love for you to have your Bibles open as we study together. Um, And the first is an encouragement to remember, so who we were before the death of Jesus. That's 11 through 13. The next is uh, being, um, it's an explanation of our reconciliation that we have in Jesus. That's 14 through 18. is our hope reassured, and that's 19 through 22. So if you you like easy notes, reminded, reconciled, reassured, Um, that's what we're looking at today. So let's look today at our first point, encouragement to remember. So last week, Jordan did an excellent job helping us consider the glories of what it means to be brought from death to life. It's incredible what it means to be made new by God through faith in the gospel. We as Christians are now raised up with Christ is what he taught us last week. We're seated with him in the heavenly places, and we are freed from slavery to sin and now able to choose what's good and right, able to actually please God and walk in his ways. Often this text, the idea of election or maybe God's sovereignty is presented as God creating a bunch of robots that have no choice but to follow him. But the opposite is really true. If you think about it, sin has created the robots. Right. Sin has created slaves out of every human Gentile Jew alike. And God has removed dead hearts, removed robot mechanical hearts, enslaved to sin and replaced them with living hearts of freedom, able to choose to follow him, to love him, to join him in his preordained work, which was mentioned in verse 10, which we learned about last week. This reality that God would save us, his church comprised of Jews and Gentiles, in order that we might participate in displaying his wisdom that saved us and united us to his eternal sovereign plan is what this passage is all about. But apparently it's a truth that's easily forgotten. It's easily pushed aside. We do it in lots of ways. We do it individually as Christians. We do it collectively as churches. We ask, what's next? We think, okay, thanks for saving us, God. But now what? What do we do? How should we think about this? How should we, how does this religion now function? What are, what are the tasks? Should we be a missional church? Should we be a community church? Should we be a seeker friendly church or a highly theological church? We start asking questions like these. And the problem with that way of thinking is that this is not a new religion. Right, this is not a new idea. The church is not God's like dream board that he's now like, oh, I like this idea. And he puts another tack up on the board and he's making this kind of tapestry as it goes along. Like this has been God's plan uh, forever. The existence as the body of Christ, our calling to display God's wisdom, our task to join his work was established before God ever said, let there be light. Like this has been fixed. It's not a sudden left turn in scripture that we're studying. The gospel revealed in Christ is the continuation of the straight path laid in the creation narrative, right? Brought about in the covenants in the law and in the prophets and then in the incarnation of Jesus and now in the creation, beautification and sanctification of the church. What we should do and be about is not a mystery yet to be discovered, discovered or decided by us. It is a mystery that is being made known through us. Did you catch that? Like, like we are now helping explain the mystery, the church, the person Christ unites all things on earth by uniting people from every tribe, tongue and nation under the rule and reign of the sun. That's why Paul encourages us to remember. That's the first thing he says in our text this evening. He just explained the most glorious truth in all of existence. The gospel applied to the elect and told us we are now connected to God's sovereign work. It's incredible that was predestined before the foundation of the world. And what do we do? We need to remember, right? Remember what? This is what Paul said. Remember that at one time in verse 11, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We're told to remember the reality, our reality. Before God saved us, not individually necessarily. So this isn't necessarily like a call to remember where you were the moment you trusted Jesus, but where you were in existence as a Gentile, completely separated from God completely alienated from all that is true and right and good. But it's interesting because nobody's safe in these passages. Like Jordan pointed out last week, Paul speaks clearly to the Gentiles because that's his audience, but he takes real shots at the Jews as well. Do you guys hear him when you were, when you were listening? He makes it clear that the Jews are called the circumcision, right? He, uh, but that circumcision, he makes clear, is an outward reality done to the flesh. And it's not carried out by God, but it's carried out by hands, right? It's a human work. Like the Gentiles, the Jews were in need of a savior. They carried the promises and covenants as an external sign. But in like last week's text, Paul makes clear all mankind needs new life, including the Jews, including the covenant people of God. And the Gentiles obviously were no better off. Off, Many people argue they were worse off. They were separated from the Messiah, even the idea of the Messiah. They were alienated from the commonwealth of being God's chosen people. They had no knowledge of the promises God had made to humanity or the covenants he had set in place that people might have access to his presence again. No hope, really no God, only false gods. And for many of us, some of you, this isn't true. Some of you can remember um, where you were as an adult, maybe when God saved you. But for many of us, it's hard to remember and think um, before God. We're kind of like the Jews. We were raised in the church. We have grown up in the promises, the covenants, the Messiah. Uh, This is a great blessing, but Paul is calling us to remember because forgetting was deadly. It's it's deadly. And I'm not talking about deadly for you. This is what it says in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Us rejecting God cost Jesus Christ his life. The blessed son of God, the expected Messiah of Israel, the hope of Israel, the fulfillment of all the promises of God murdered that his life might be extended to us. Like Jordan mentioned last week, I think this is my favorite quote. He said last week, the best gift ever given to the worst enemy imaginable. My second favorite quote was, hold on to your seatbelts. I loved it. I've been holding on to my seatbelt all week. Um, I love you, man. You, you did so well last week. I'm so thankful for how you exposed the word. If we allow ourselves to slip into forgetfulness, the cost of our salvation, then the true worship of God slowly fades in our lives and in our churches. If we allow ourselves to slip into forgetfulness on why Christ paid that price, and the purpose of the church, it gets off track and we toil in our own strength instead of joining God in his preordained work on the earth. And the church in Ephesus did that. We're gonna close our sermon by looking at what Jesus says to them in Revelation. We were saved to glorify God. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. We cannot fall back into the fleshly living of the Gentile mindset, following our lusts, following our own desires, following gods who cannot speak or hear. But honestly, it's equally tragic when we slip into the religious circumcision of the Jews manipulating our lives to comply in our own strength, clinging to our own wisdom, relying on our own religious work. Both are wrong. Both are in need of redemption. We become puffed up in our pride. We become convinced in our own righteousness. We become busy wasting our lives and the lives of others with religious pursuits and selfish service. We lose sight. We forget. We forget the God glorifying motive behind our salvation and begin to place our personal joy and comfort at the center of our theology. Has that ever been true of you? Paul is fighting to place the glory of God at the center of our theology. The life, death and resurrection of Jesus as the bullseye of history, the gospel as the purpose of all things. Think about it, before the foundation of the world, God saw the effects of sin on humanity. He saw Adam's choice and all that it would entail and so he set apart Christ as a solution before it all even existed. This is, I mean, again, like I said, this is too much for us to consider. Even, as, even for three months in the book of Ephesians, this is too much. Christ was born the Jewish Messiah in a Jewish context, but his saving ability was so much bigger than that. His vision for his people was so much bigger than that. God saw how humanity would abuse their privileged status and worship creation rather than the creator. He saw how the Jews would abuse their covenantal status and use his presence among them to elevate themselves and separate themselves from the nations instead of drawing them in. And in one brilliant move, in one sovereign act, he solved all of humanity's problems. All of them. No one saw it coming. I just have to keep repeating that. Paul, a Jew of Jews, did not see this coming. Israel was content with their religion, their hatred of the Gentile world, their covenants and promises that they had manipulated to suit their own ends and their own lives. And we as the Gentile world, we were content worshiping false gods and going about our lives separated from God, right, until they met an eternal death and meeting God face to face for the first time, never conceiving of his existence until he was judging them rightly. They were content with their evil practices, their worthless sacrifices, and their wasted lives. But God, but God. I mean, anytime you see that in scripture, get your highlighter out, um, get, look, read the whole book again, uh, because when God acts in these situations, it is profound. All of us, Jew and Gentile alike had missed it, but God in his rich mercy brought the dead to life. We must remember, you must remember Christ church. You must remember your salvation. Remember that the best Jewish scholars in the world could not have seen Jesus correctly. They knew all of the promises. They knew all of the scripture. But their dead hearts could not come to life apart from the sovereign work of God. And what does that mean for us? Like if that's true of them, what does that mean for us pagan Gentiles who knew nothing of the Messiah? Man, It means that you're loved so much means that a good God, out of his great love, did a work that we could not fathom, much less accomplish ourselves. He brought us to life. And such a glorious work must have a purpose. It must have a reason that's bigger than just saving a few rebels from death. And that's our next point. It's the explanation of our reconciliation, why God did this in one person, in one act, God solves humanity's humanity's problem and created a new man, it says, a new race. So like the biblical understanding is now Jews, Gentiles and the church. That's how we understand the world. Or you could really even just say the church and everybody else. No dividing lines, no separation, no superiority. Just us worshiping Jesus together. The veil was torn in two. The temple was destroyed and in three days it was rebuilt. But this time, no bricks, no mortar, Jews and Gentiles laid on top of each other by the Holy Spirit with Christ as our cornerstone. It's incredible. We're one body with Christ as the head. You guys have heard all of these. We are branches with Christ as the vine. We are kingdom of priests with Christ as the high priest. We're brothers and sisters with Christ as our older brother. We are the flock with Christ as our shepherd. We are beautiful. We are a bride and Christ is our husband. It's insane. All of of this imagery is meant to point to this reality of what Christ has done. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free, Paul says to the Galatians. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring according to the promise. Abraham, I think is a perfect example. I think he's like the only person in history who is like, a pagan Gentile worshiper and then like a covenanted Jew, you know? I mean, there's, there's some nuance in there. But the man who was called out of Gentile pagan worship into a covenant relationship with God that would bring about a covenant people, that would bring about a covenant keeper who would preach peace to those who are near to the covenants of God and to those who are far off. That's our text this evening, verse 17. And that is Paul quoting Isaiah chapter 57. This was the mystery Paul was talking about in verse 9 of chapter 1. Our text tonight describes the uniting of all things on earth. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, breaking down the walls of hostility and uniting all things in himself to the praise of our glorious God. This is the foundation that all of our ecclesiology is built upon. This is the rock bottom of our church. The beautiful tapestry of the Bride of Christ, woven together by the Holy Spirit with no distinction. That's the, that's the crazy part. We know this is an impossible task apart from the power and wisdom of Christ. How do we know that? Because we, as humans, love to build walls. We love hostility. We love pointing out differences and holding grudges, and God, in his wisdom, did away with all of it. He created the backwards kingdom, the upside-down kingdom, Where the first are last and the poor inherit the earth, where the lame are healed and the proud are brought low, where the lion and the lamb lay down beside each other and where the Jew and the Gentile worship together. It's a miracle. It really is. It's a miracle. This was the event the angels longed to see. This was the, uh, the thing that the earth was groaning for since the fall. This was the fulfillment of all the laws and the prophets in one life, in one death, in one resurrection, all of the promises of God made to the world, to both Jews and Gentiles. They found their yes in Christ. It is finished. This is a glorious, glorious truth for he himself is our peace. It says in verse 14 who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the Christ, thereby killing hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And this is why we must remember must remember who we were before Jesus. This is why we must remember the reconciling work he has done and what it has accomplished on our behalf. This is why we must fight for unity and love that is founded on Christ, grounded in his word, and dedicated to the glory of God. See, the stakes are high. They're so much higher than having a good time on Sunday so much higher than being comfortable at a church that suits you or relying on the promise of heaven in the future to justify sin today. The stakes are high. The walls of hostility have been brought down, but the Christian world is still so divided, are we not? I've heard it so often from my own mouth. We accuse each other of being too woke, too right-wing, too theological, too lax, too charismatic, too stuffy, We focus on things that seem so important, but will be forgotten in eternity. We complain about our churches. We neglect serving the body in simple ways. We take and take and take, even though we were saved by a gift that was given to us free of charge, a gift we do not deserve, but it was given to us through the resurrection power of the God of the universe. Is this, is this why God saved us? Is this why he unites us? Is this why he's building his church so we can focus on trivial things? Of course not. And I know that you know that. But we've got to remember. We've got to remember. We must remember the mystery of the reconciliation we have received in Christ if we desire to join in the peace that Jesus purchased for us. This rant that I just went on was birthed out of my own sinful heart. Everything I just accused Christendom of, the Holy Spirit accused me of while I was writing this sermon. No one's exempt. And if you're anything like me, the list just goes on and on and on. I've honestly never felt more loved and more cared for by a body than I do at this body. God has blessed us here, but there's still so much work for us to do. Amen? Let's lean on each other. Let's look past temporary shortcomings into the eternal plan of God to unite all things in Christ. This is the truth that's reverberating throughout the cosmos, the reconciliation of humanity to God and humanity to each other. This is what our hearts and minds should be set on, an eternal reality, not an internal, not a temporal one. And so the question, I mean, I asked this last time I preached, like what occupies your mind? What occupies your Christian experience? What occupies your prayer life? What do you hope to get from God? What do you hope to get from Jesus? What do you hope to get from church? These questions and their answers become clear as we gain a more biblical understanding of the God of the Bible, like Paul is giving us this evening. They become clear as we submit ourselves to his will and his purpose, as we celebrate what he has done and is continuing to do. They for sure become more clear as we zoom out for just a moment from our little slice of history Zoom out and look at what the God of the Bible is doing, what he has always done. There's no beginning, no end, no limit in power, no limit in wisdom, working for his glory and for our good. This is, I think, a heavy statement. I don't know. I think it's a true statement. Our displayed reconciliation of God, oh no, our displayed reconciliation to God and to each other is the purpose of the church. say it again, our displayed reconciliation to God and to each other is the purpose of the church. Our ongoing peace with God and peace with others is our mission. The world knows nothing of this peace, Jew and Gentile, and that's why God is using us to display it, to display His completed work on our behalf. The world finds its hope in a false God, it's a God that's blind to sin, a God that ignores injustice a God that allows anything, invites rebellion, a false God that serves them and evolves as they do. But the world doesn't have peace. It's a joke. It's horrible. It's, it eludes them. As their desires change, as their ideas shift, and as their pursuits turn up, disappointment and shame, instead of peace, their hearts um, were created for. you. Can, I don't even have to tell you the events that are going on in the news. They all came to your mind. There is no peace in this world apart from the person Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus, there's no peace because he himself is our peace, is what our text says. It's not that he just bring peace. It's not that he just came and taught. You should love one another. The Bible says he is our peace. The physical resurrected Jesus is the sole source of peace with God and with each other. He didn't just bring peace. He is peace. And his existence secures peace for those who are gifted faith. His broken down flesh has restored the alienated flesh of us, the Gentiles, and the mutilated flesh of the Jew, creating in himself, Paul says, in Christ himself, one new man that's reconciled to God. It's interesting, the word peace, when I think of it, I think of the news. I think of wars. I think of fighting. But the word peace in Hebrew and the usage mostly in Scripture is relational peace. The most common greeting in Hebrew is what? Do you guys know? Shalom. What does that mean? Peace right and even in the ancient even in the arab world right now salam waalaykum peace be with you right the response is waalaykum salam peace be with you like this peace this reconciling relational peace is the focus i love verse 18 though it doesn't talk about peace it displays it god himself displays shalom this is what 18 says for through him we both have access in one spirit to the father it seems kind of like an inconsequential verse until you look at it for a moment Here we see all of the persons of the Trinity working in shalom with one another. The plan of God the Father is accomplished by the Son and applied by the Spirit to both Jew and Gentile. God's so wise. He doesn't just call us to peace. He's not just acting this. He is in peace with Himself. He is displaying this harmony within Himself. We are the temple that's being built up. Let's look now at our second point hope reassured. So, so hope is secured in the broken body of Jesus and is reassured as Paul teaches us. Is this our second point or our third point? For you guys, it feels like an hour. For me, it feels like 10 minutes. So um, Paul began our text today, reminded the Gentiles that they were separated from God, right? That's what our first point was. We need to remember who we were. And he ends our text today, reassuring them that they are no longer strangers. It's beautiful. Let's read it. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So we are that temple that's being built up into a new dwelling place for God, comprised of bricks from every tribe, tongue and nation that are being laid by the Holy Spirit himself. I mean, it's displayed this evening as we heard from our friends from overseas. My family recently sold our house, and we're in their market for a new house. I wish the Holy Spirit had built more houses in Albuquerque. Um, I'm amazed by how crooked and how broken down everything is. Even the like, houses that we definitely you know, couldn't afford, that we, we toured, were just broken down. So many cracks and holes, right? How come the home builders in the 60s couldn't anticipate the layout that I desired today? Like, What is going on in this broken world? Over time, houses wear, they break down, old layouts and materials become outdated, foundations settle, and a slow decay begins. And in some ways, this is very much like the state of the world since the fall. Decay, brokenness, have plagued creation since sin has entered the world. The good foundation God had laid in his creation was corrupted. And no matter how hard we tried, we put plaster, we put caulking here, we painted here, no matter how hard we tried to repair it, we could not. Gentiles worship false gods, Jews doubled down on the law and allowed the temple of prayer to become a den of thieves, loving money, loving praise more than they loved peace with God. Like the reality is when Christ came to space, like when he came into our time and our space, it was a pretty ugly sight. Gospels are filled with stories of Jesus encountering this brokenness, the effects of sin through physical disabilities through mental disabilities, through hatred, through racism, through lust, through pride, through death, through murder. The building had failed because the foundation had failed. It was missing its cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected had to become the cornerstone or there would be no hope for the world. The cornerstone, the Jewish Messiah, long-awaited one, is now a stumbling block, unfortunately, to so many, not just the Jews, to so many people is a stumbling block. The Jews want signs. The world is wrapped up in pointless philosophy, and they both miss Christ, who is both the power of God to unite all things in heaven and earth, and the wisdom of God to do that before the foundation of the world was even laid. Like I mentioned above, no one saw this coming, and God designed it that way so that we Uh, so that there would be no confusion on who gets the glory, no confusion on who is doing this miraculous work within the church. The world has its wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Jews and Gentiles alike had rejected the cornerstone. The apostles and prophets laid a good foundation, right? A good foundation in their writings and in their teachings, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But without Jesus, the foundation was not secure. It was not complete, and it was not straight and true. When Christ was resurrected and seated at the right hand of the Father, the cornerstone was set in place forever, and it will never be shaken. The cracks that sin had caused are now slowly being filled. They're slowly being filled in. The crooked doorways and the sloping floors that I walked under and over this whole week, right? They're finally being straightened. Through the church, the wisdom of God is being displayed. The kingdom of already and not yet has been inaugurated, and we are citizens. And one day he will return and make everything new. But even now, even now he is making things new. We sit at his table. We're about to partake of a meal that Christ himself prepared for us. We eat his food, we drink his wine, and we will do so for an eternity. One day our decaying bodies will be resurrected, Our broken relationships will be set right, our tears will be wiped away, and we will all gather around the throne of Christ and shout, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, like we sang this evening. Worthy is the cornerstone on who this whole temple is built. This is the temple the Holy Spirit is is constructing. It's not a temple like we think of when we think of the old temple. It's a temple of praise and worship to our King a temple of unity and love. This is the hope of the nations. This is the key to your contentment and your perseverance in this life, remembering the temple that God is building. We must keep this truth ever before us. We must fight to align our hearts with God. We must keep His intentions for His people as the fuel that drives everything that we do as individual Christians and as the church. God already stated the purpose for the church. And that must be the passion of our lives. Unity in Christ, peace with one another, joined together to be a dwelling place for God Himself. Paul ends this section giving us clarity on what God is doing here, now. This is what He says in Him. This is verse 22 You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Right now, in this sermon, in this moment. In Jesus, we're being built together by the Holy Spirit in such a way that God dwells with us. Right? of course it's incomplete. Of course it's insufficient. Of course it's never going to be finished in this life until Jesus returns. But the Spirit in this very moment, in this very moment, is actively forming us into a fitting dwelling for God. That's the purpose of church. That we would love one another in unity and that God would dwell with us and that the world would see it. That they would say, God, is It's true. I can see past all of their folly. I can see past all of their disunity. I can see past the news articles and my own experience. And I can see that what God, do, what he's doing is true. That cornerstone is secure. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Right now in Jesus, we're being built together by the Holy Spirit in such a way that God dwells with us. This is what it says in Revelation seven. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes. That's why I wore this shirt today. Just kidding. With palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. This is not a missions passage. This is a church passage. The goal of missions is to bring about this beautiful reality. This unified church is being described here, but the vision is of the church. It's of us doing what we were created to do, what we were predestined to do by God. Revelation 7 gives us a glimpse of the already and not yet dwelling place of the almighty God. It's filled. It's filled with unified worship. All eyes are on Christ. All mouths are worshiping in perfect unison, no distraction, no confusion, just red hot worship. But it's funny, like I mentioned earlier in the sermon, this is not how the book of Revelation begins, is it? Only 30 years or so after Paul wrote Ephesians, Jesus says this to the church in Ephesus. He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. In verse five, this is what he says. I don't know, I mean, obviously the Holy Spirit did this. He says, remember (laughs) Jesus like Paul encourages the Ephesians to remember. But this time, it's not who you were before Christ. This time, it's who you are in Christ. Remember your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. It's crazy. In 30 years, they had become obsessed with being right and telling others that they were wrong. And they were doing a good job. I mean, I think Jesus commends them. They had neglected worship. Their foundation of good judgment lacked the cornerstone of Christ. So dangerous. The cracks were showing, and Christ in His kindness helped them. Their unity was misguided and founded on something that would not stand. Jesus knew it. He knew it. Their unity was misguided. It's such a really, it's an eerie reality to consider. Could this be Christchurch in 30 years? Absolutely it could. Absolutely it could. How do we prevent it? We remember. <laughs> remember as we talked, as God, unless God saved us, we would still be pagan Gentiles. We'd still be separated from God and his promises, but that is not our fate. Remember that. If you've trusted in the completed work of Christ on your behalf, then Christ's blood, it holds you and it keeps you and it bought you and you are now near. You are not far off. You are a child of God. Remember. We remember the wisdom of the reconciliation that has torn down the walls of hostility between nations and has saved us equally by the blood of Christ. We remember the miracle that God has accomplished to display us in the heavenly places. And lastly, we remember that the great hope we have in Jesus hope for today in our trouble and time of need, but better than that, we have hope of an eternity where we will have no more troubles, brother and sister in Christ who are struggling, who are weary, who are tired, remember, God has saved you. And remember, this is not your home. There's a hope so much better. There's a place so much more secure where Jesus is the cornerstone for an eternity and all the tears that we cry, all the frustrations that we experience will be done away with and our only concern will be worship and our only experience will be perfect love in the presence of Christ himself. Let's seek that together. Let's be built up together to a dwelling place for God the, and by the Holy Spirit, understanding that we exist to display his wisdom in the reconciling cross of Christ Jesus. Please pray with me to that end. Father, we remember, we remember who we were before you, separated, alienated, without hope, without you. We remember the work that you've done in your son his life for ours, his death for ours, he united all things in heaven and on earth. You've brought the lion and the lamb together, the Jew and the Gentile worship together. It's a miracle. You've done it and you're continuing to do it and you will continue to do it. Our hope is secure in you, Jesus. Would you help us as a body? Would you realign our hearts and minds? Would you help us to focus on what's true and right and good? Jesus, would you be magnified? Father, would you be glorified? Holy Spirit, would you continue to break down the walls of hostility, the walls that divide us, the walls that we create and build with our own sin? Would you forgive us where we've fallen short? And would you help us persevere till the end? We have great hope, Jesus, and that hope is secure in you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.